0: Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by
1: Adam from Adamian Golf.
0: So I'm uh, recovering from a bit of an illness here, so apologies in advance if I, I don't know what I'm going to do, cough, lose my train of thought, whatever. Maybe it'll just be a normal episode, and <laughs> everyone will be like, guys, oh, it just seems the same, but you sound nasty okay. One. I was, I'm okay. I'm okay now, but I got hit hard. I think I had the flu. That That's my best guess, but. Anyway, I'm back in commission here. So we've had a few episodes lately that have gotten a lot of praise. The novelo one did great. People liked our little mini thoughts back and forth. So we're gonna we're gonna do a little bit of that today, right? Em? We're gonna do more of our we're not gonna choose one topic on this episode. We're just gonna do a bunch of little mini thoughts and explore them.
1: Yeah, see this is the the mailbag. The Twitter mailbag or X mailbag. Yeah, or X.
0: Some of mine aren't actually I have to be fully honest, mine aren't questions from people they're past tweets of mine <laughs> okay that's fine as so, well yeah well we'll do a mixture so we'll, we'll try and cover a lot of ground quickly here i'm gonna let you have the box you tee off first buddy
1: so we had an email i probably should have read this before but i i if i remember rightly the gist of it was the <laughs> tour average with a driver the tour average of the driver is down, right? Hitting down. So we're talking about angle of attack here, whether you hit up on it or hitting down. So obviously in the last few years, I suppose since TrackMan, there's been a bigger push. I've been part of that push to hit more up on the ball because there's lots of potential for more distance when you do that. We know that distance is key in terms of strokes gained. What is it? Every 20 yards you gain is 0.1 of a shot as a tall player, even more as an amateur. So distance is really important. I know 0.1 of a shot doesn't sound like much, but that's 1.4 to yeah, 3 think- shots around, right, for an amateur.
0: I think Lou Stagner actually tweeted the other day, five handicap or 10 handicap, it's worth more like two to three strokes around if you could find those 20 to 25 yards. So as you said earlier, distance is important for pros, but it's more important for regular golfers just because it's harder to hit greens or get close to the greens with with farther approach shots. Tour players can hit 180 yard approach shot, no problem. 15 handicap, that's much harder. So distance is is important for everyone, but is it is disproportionately more important as handicap typically goes
1: up. Yeah, you know, for the average 20, 25 handicap, you know, you're hitting more par fours in two, whereas when you lose that 25 yards, you can't even reach a lot of par fours. Yeah, can I just,
0: let me, let me just interject for one second. I'm gonna be rude. I was on a golf trip recently and I'm not trying to be mean to my playing partner because we were screaming at him because he was playing 7,000 yard tees and he shouldn't have been (laughs) and he could not get to any par four and two. And we're like, what are you doing? Like, you know, he he was thinking he was the golfer 20, 25 years ago. And we were just like, please go up like you're not enjoying this. And that is a continued plea I make to most golfers is that play the appropriate tees so you can hit par fours into as adam said there is no reason to make this game harder for yourself it's hard enough so i'm just gonna throw that out there real quickly and you can continue your thought
1: well that definitely won't be me as i get older because i i enjoy playing the forward tees now i mean i like a good challenge every now and again if it's a real long course i'll go off the backs but i'm happy playing forward tees as well with my buddies anyway hitting up or down so the tour average this person mentioned is down so if you look at the um, TrackMan averages, I think they said it's like one point three on the downswing. So why would that be? If hitting up on it is more optimal for distance, why would the men, the male tour players, be hitting down? Isn't that super old though at that, at yeah. this point? That, that,
0: that's like eight years. That can't be true anymore. I, I, I refuse to accept that that's the average, but it was at one point.
1: It's from 2008. So that's the first big point oh. is it's an old yeah. chart. It's yeah. from 2008, which is what, 15 years old now? So that's wow. when, yeah, that's when Trackman first became popular. I know it was around before then, but that's when it first became popular and people started using it. So, um, you know, now we know that hitting up on it, we know more optimal launches. And so I, I believe, and I can't, don't put my, uh, my life on the line here, but I believe that if you were to measure now, the average would be more up or less down. It would be at least neutral. But if you look at the lady professionals, they did it for the LPGA as well, and they were up. They were on average three degrees up. And I feel like the average golfer should use the lady pros as more of a Benchmark, because they're more similar in swing speeds, right? The average uh, Tour Pro lady was about 90, 95. It's less than 100 mile an hour with a driver. Yeah, which is they're, more- they're
0: usually in the mid 90s. Like I know Lexi Thompson is a huge aberration. And I think, well, she just played at the Shriners in your neck of the woods. And her ball speed is like high. One, her, her ball speed is actually identical to mine, like high 150s. So she's swinging like 107, 108. And she's like, you know, one of the big hitters on the LPGA Tour. I think that's going to change. I think the next crop of college players coming out. On the LPGA Tour, will all be over 100 miles an hour easily. But yeah, I think the mid-90s is is kind of, you know, you still see a lot of players driving at 230, 240 on the LPGA Tour.
1: Yeah. So number one, it's old information, that hitting down on average. Number two, I think you should compare more to the LPGA for most people, which is hitting up on so many po- points here. But I mean, even average is not a very good thing to look at, average, because... You know I always say if I put my head in the oven and my ass in the freezer, my average temperature is probably okay, but <laughs> so you <gonna, laughs> you're gonna get a lot of tall players who hit down on it and you get a lot of tall players who hit up on it, and the average might be kind of level, but I would rather out out of all of those players I'd rather look at well, who are the most efficient players out of those, and then you get th- things like Rory McElroy or um Justin Rob. Thomas Rob yeah.
0: is definitely the he's I think he's probably – you know, he doesn't have the swing speed of Rory, but he hits up on it. He's like – doesn't leave anything to waste in his golf swing. He hits up on it like four, five, six, something like that.
1: Yeah, I know Rory hits up on it and Justin Thomas hits about five up on it. And those are efficient guys as well. We're not even just looking at the longest. We're looking at the most efficient. Who can create the most distance for their body weight maybe or for their club head speed? Because that's what we're trying to do is maximize what we can get out of what our body can produce. And, and so you see the occasional one, like a cam champ, for example, Cameron Champ hits down on it, I believe, and he still yep. hits it a mile. But you can do that when you've got 130 mile an hour of club head speed. But what we, what we should say is, well, if Cameron Champ hit up on it, would he hit it farther? And the answer would be very, very likely Yes. There's also the physics part of when you do have super high club head speeds, you can get away with lower launches and higher spins because you're still going to hit it. You're still going to bomb it out there. If you've got 120 mile an hour club head speed again, it doesn't mean you won't hit it farther. If you, if you optimize everything, optimize your angle of attack. So then the next layer of that is, well, let's look at the, the most efficient on tour. Let's look at the ladies who are very efficient for their club head speed. And let's look at the most efficient people in the world, the male long drive champions. They are geared just for maximum distance. And what do they do? They all hit insanely up on it. I've seen like 10, 12 degrees on the upswing. Now, the caveat to all of this is, is hitting up on it optimal for overall performance? Should I Do I want everybody hitting 12 up on it? No, I don't think it's feasible for most people to be able to even physically do that. You, know, you kind of have to contort your body a little to do it. And what's the trade-off, right? If you gain 20 yards, 30 yards, but you start spraying it everywhere, then we could say, well, it might be optimal for distance, but not for accuracy. However, the caveat to that caveat is there's no guarantee that you're gonna spray it by hitting more up on it for example I hit more up on it and I hit it more accurate as well so it, it was a double benefit for me
0: I that's one of the few things I'll, I'll measure with my driver and I'm I'm up four, five, six degrees and hitting it straighter than ever. Actually, like the cue of hitting up on it has me hitting it straighter. So my the way I think about it is similar to what you said. We've, we've gone over this before. If people will really want to take a deep dive on this, I would do our driver practice episode series. I think we had two episodes there. Uh, we also have a launch monitor episode. So we, we go into this quite a bit. We'll tie it up here a little bit, but I think if your swing speed is below like I don't know 110. I don't know what the right number, the line in the sand is, you really should be thinking about having a neutral to positive angle of attack because you don't have enough speed to offset that. So I I I don't see any downside to most players learning to hit up on it more. It's not terribly complicated. We've talked about it before. There's some, you know, whether it's ball position Spine tilt, adre- how you address the ball. A lot of it can be taken care of, in the setup. I don't feel like it's a massive change to your swing, but adding that distance is is there for you without a change in 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 club head speed. I think for the average player, even the above average player. I mean, that's what the modern golf ball wants to do. It's what equipment is built for. Yeah, so I'd be shocked if they. They took every PGA Tour player now an and put them on the track, man. My guess is it would be like, again, the average is misleading, I know, but I think it would be one to two up. That'd be my best guess.
1: Well, I mean, basically, if we're looking to optimize distance, we know that the launch needs to be between about 16 to 18 degrees with very low spin, and you just can't do that hitting down on it. It's just it's not going to happen. So if you want to get those optimal launch numbers which i personally did then you're going to have to hit up on it and it, it takes around about 5 degrees on the upswing at least to to achieve those numbers again you know hitting up on it is not optimal necessarily for overall performance but that's where you'd have to take the gamble really i took the gamble and it for me it paid off i know yeah, there you are test, some people you
0: test, test and verify
1: yeah. I'd be a little bit more wary doing this with a tall player. Say you get a tall player who's hit five down on it all their lives and they've been a decent driver of the ball. You'd be a little bit more wary getting them to uh, hit more up on it. Oh, it could absolutely. be go one way or the other. Yeah.
0: Well, that's why Cam Champ hits down on it because he, he obviously can control it. He keeps it in play. I mean, he's a phenomenal driver of the golf ball. Why would you mess with that? And they have, and that, that goes back to one of our kind of rules of thumbs on swing changes that we discuss on the show is what do you stand to gain and what do you stand to lose? And for the better slash elite player, they always stand to lose more. So they have to be more careful with these changes. Whereas, you know, if you gave me a 15 handicap who's driving at 190 yards, I would say, well, we can get you to 220. Not easily, but like not if you're hitting down on it, seven. There's a there's a clear path to adding serious distance to your drives with some adjustments here. Like that's a gamble I'd be worth (laughs) willing to take. So, yeah, everyone always has to weigh the risks and rewards of where your game's at. But for the most part, I would say a lot of golfers stand to benefit from it. But yeah, we have plenty of other resources on the show about that. So definitely not a new topic for us.
1: Yeah, so that was from Dan Potts, the question. I'm reading it now, so thank you, Dan. Uh, what Thanks else do you Dan. got for us, John?
0: Um, I came across a clip from Novak Djokovic. Why am I forgetting? He's now widely considered the greatest tennis player ever. I'll, I'll paraphrase the clip, and it's about kind of mental strength and staying present and all that stuff. And essentially, what he said is that one of the biggest lessons he learned on mental strength in his career is that if you lose your focus and you're not quote unquote present and things start to go the wrong way for you you know, he would fight against that in the past. So if if his mind started to wander on the tennis court, which, you know, if you're playing a two, three, four hour match, that's obviously possible and similar to golf. You've got a lot of time out there. He would get angry at himself because he was – you know, Earlier in his career, he's like, Well, I got to be mentally present. My mind needs to be perfect all the time. So, when he'd have negative thoughts come into his mind, he would scold himself. And he claims that one of his biggest mental breakthroughs was that accepting that that was okay. It wasn't about having the negative thoughts, it was more about being able to divert his mind and come back to the present. So, he believes, and he is by far and away one of the strongest mental athletes of all time. There's no question. He believes the difference between him and everyone else is that it's not that he doesn't have negative thoughts or doubts. It's that he can recover and get back to the present much faster than all the other players. And one of the main keys that he said helps him do that is conscious breathing. So these are topics we've definitely talked about before on the show we just had uh jane's story on that she would a whole thing on breathing that was fascinating um i i think i talked about this when i was qualifying for the u.s mid-am and i was well under par and i'm thinking oh my god don't blow it like i had over a hundred thoughts in my head's about not blowing it but I, I was still able to figure out a way to bring myself back and that was with breathing um so i think a lot of athletes do figure this out but it it's just I think it's so important to remind people of this because I think golfers, a lot of golfers step on the course. And this could be someone who's looking to break 90 or win a golf match, whatever. They get so frazzled or angry at themselves when they have these negative thoughts. And, you know, people hear about mindfulness and staying present. And they probably think what Novak used to think early in his career is like, no, I need only positive thoughts. And that's the way to go. Like I have to be, you know, so locked in mentally and our brains just don't work that way. They're a crazy mess. Things get in there. And I think it was just a great message to hear one of the greatest athletes of all time saying like, hey, I I struggle all the time. If I'm in big matches, I doubt myself. I get upset. I mean, you could see him. He breaks his racket a lot but he's able to refocus himself. And that's what he believes is his edge. He's able to come back to, okay, what can I do now? And that's hard to do. But I think the expectation that you can't have negative thoughts is is a bit you know, misleading. And I think a lot of golfers step on the course with that mindset.
1: Yeah. I hit some of my best shots. Well, there's a bunch of rubbish going through my head. <laughs> that's the yeah, thing.
0: Sometimes you just can't help it. You're like, oh, I'm going to chunk this. Then you hit a great shot. <laughs> you know?
1: I'll often stand over a drive thinking, oh, don't go left. And then I'll, I'll think, oh, but there's, there's out of bounds right as well. Don't overcompensate. <laughs> but then I kind of notice that when it's happening. And when I do find that, that I'm doing that, I can say to myself, ah, just free up. Just allow anything to happen here. You know, if you hit it left yeah. or right. It's not, it's not like I'm going through that exact script in my head, but it's more of a feeling of just relax and accept whatever happens here. And then I swing freely at it. I don't like steering it.
0: Yeah, if you're... I feel when you are truly open to all outcomes and there are a lot of outcomes on the golf course, like when you can be at peace with all of them, that's when I think you'll be in a state to hit your best shots. Would I want to have a bunch of negative thoughts on every swing? No, I I absolutely do not. Like I'd rather be in a more positive state and I think I am. But when they do occur, having these methods to redirect your brain and I think there's a lot of things you could do on the course, whether that's just kind of talking with playing partners. If you need to do the breathing route, stare off into the distance, remind yourself of why you're out there and it's supposed to be fun and being grateful. Like there's a lot of things you could do to redirect your mind on the course. And it won't be as hard as what Novak Djokovic has to do at a Wimbledon final because you're going to be at your course on a Saturday. It's not as big of a deal, but there, there are a number of things you could do to, to redirect your brain And be okay with whatever's going to happen. And that's a hard thing for a lot of golfers to accept because I think it means giving up control. And, And I'm a big believer in control in golf because a lot of people come to golf used to controlling things in their life and they are at odds with the game. And I was for a very long time because there's a lot of things you can't control in golf and it's frustrating
1: Yeah, giving up control is a big phrase for me. You know, I remember as a kid when I would get these fear, negative thoughts, I'd get very tight, tense, start to steer and try and control my swing, and it would just make things worse. Whereas now I just notice those negative thoughts and just swing very freely with irons. So that's that's something I do with the driver because you know this left and right is going to be the error with irons. My error would tend to be a fat shot. If ever I hit any kind of fault, it would be that. So. I just focus on ground contact, you know, and I know if I'm placing focus on that, moving the ground contact forward, I'm less likely to hit a fat shot. So, yeah, you know, one of the tactics could be have a very definite mental cue, even if it's a technical cue, or it could be, you know, simple as moving the ground contact forwards, but I'm not focusing on, oh, I hope this doesn't go in the water, you know, which is very external, or I hope I don't chunk this short. I'm, I'm, very very high heightened awareness of right here's where i want to contact the ground i want to implement the feeling of moving it forwards
0: yep there's so many creative ways you can redirect your mind and i think that that's an example i use as well all right but yeah i thought that was a thought that was a good one from novak because again you know generational athlete admitting to being scared anxious frustrated and then doing his best to redirect his mind all right i will lob the ball back to you the ball's in your court
1: why can you do a movement without a ball, but then it reverts? So I'm sure every listener here tried to make a new movement in their swing. They've tried to maybe upgrade their mechanics, perhaps, and then they uh, they can do it in a practice swing, but then they place a the ball there and it goes straight back to the old swing. I completely understand this. I used to suffer with this as a kid a lot. There's loads of reasons for it, unfortunately. The biggest one is a change in attention and intention. When there's no ball there, you are fully free to focus on the movement. And when you place a ball there, the goal switches. Now, a huge part of this is unconscious. Unfortunately, you can't get rid of this, but you can notice it. One of the things that I really struggle in my own game to do is to shallow the club shaft you know, when I'm training it, just for like purposes, I don't really care about it for my own game, but sometimes I have to demonstrate it. And again, doing it without a ball there is very, very easy. And when I place a ball there, I revert back. And I just, my tricks for getting around it, increasing the exaggeration of the feel, placing more focus on it, imagining the ball isn't there. So, you know, completely getting rid of the result mentally. It's hard to do, especially when you're in a room where a shank could kill you. <laughs> so, um, so sometimes That's I have real to pressure. go. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Even the difference between a foam ball and a real ball, I can notice the difference in the swing mechanics. The moment I put a real ball there, the fear is heightened of making a mistake. So a huge part of this is losing the fear, giving yourself the freedom, even if it's just for one or two shots. Say, I am open to hitting any kind of outcome here, even if I whiff it. I want to 100% make the movement. And by the way, the hardest part of making a change is always that initial stage. Once you've done it and you've put a few reps in it, it gets easier and easier and easier over time. So we have to use this insane level of concentration and attention and awareness in those initial few hundred reps. But it can start to relax a little as you go on. Usually people relax it off too quickly. They'll do insane awareness for the first shot, but then they'll go straight back to the old one. So I use a trick in the lesson, I'll say, right, imagine there's a gun to your head for this next shot. And imagine I'm gonna pull the trigger if you don't make the movement. Now the result of the shot is not important, but if you don't make the movement that we're after, I'm gonna pull the trigger. And instantly everybody increases their ability to do the movement. But then the next swing after that, they revert back again because they think, oh, I've done it once now. That's it. It's like, no, you've got to use that gun to the head level of concentration for the next hundred, maybe even thousand reps. After that point, you can take the gun away. But yeah, it should be mentally exhausting when you're making a change initially. What what your thoughts on that, John?
0: It's hard. It's frustrating. I think the expectation level, is, is, as you spoke to, is, is one of the biggest problems for a lot of players what I mean by that is yeah there's there's like this uh, I don't know if it's I would call it a totem pole or or different levels of the ladder you have to climb And, and we've talked about this in our swing change episode is that you know if you do it a few times for the for in a lesson, like you know, we've talked about this. How you don't love posting videos and lessons of like, oh, before and after. Like, look what I did to this, you know, this golfer. I they showed up today looking like this, but I made them look like that afterwards. It's like okay, that that's one level of pressure. Now, can they do it without you telling them to do it? Can they do it on the course? And like, there's different levels of pressure that are going to trick your body into doing what it was doing beforehand. And that is like so so frustrating so i think if you step on the golf course like let's say you were working on a new i don't know wedge technique and you were hitting it great at home or the the practice area and then you step on the course for the first time you're like okay now i've got this 30 yard shot i have to execute and then you just lay the sod over it and you're like going nuts on yourself and you hate it that's okay like that that's to be expected. And as you said, you have to be open to that possibility. And the more you're open to it, the more you'll probably allow the new pattern to emerge. I've definitely gone through this in so many different phases of my game over the years. But yeah, I think the two words that you said, exaggeration is, is very important and also being patient and open to the setbacks that will inevitably occur. So yeah, I think it's just a realization that when you have no pressure on And you you can make the new movement. I think that's some evidence that you're capable of it physically, which is a good thing. But there's a huge difference between that and one chance on the tee box with pressure or one chance with the putter or the the bunker shot, whatever that, that shot is for you. It's far different. So you need a lot of reps. You need time. You need patience to kind of let it run its course. And usually it it could take several months. You know, we've talked about this before. You know, if you're making a major swing overhaul, that could could take a few months. If it was something more minor, then, you know, maybe not as long, but yeah, changing golf is, it's hard. It's it's really hard to do because you're essentially rewiring your brain. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Sweet Spot listeners, we are back with an exclusive offer from one of my favorite clothing brands, Viore. I've been wearing Viore for years. I've got their shorts, Sunday joggers, t-shirts, button downs. I've become a little obsessed with this brand, and I'm pretty sure you are not going to find more comfortable material. I guarantee it. So if you are sick and tired of your old workout gear and you want a new perspective on performance apparel, I recommend checking them out. Everything they make is incredibly versatile. You can run, lift weights, swim, do yoga, even play golf. Or like me, I wear some of their stuff out to dinner for weekend errands or mostly just lounging around the house. So if you want to give Viore a shot, we are going to give you a 20% off discount off your first purchase and you're going to get free shipping on anything over $75 with free returns. Go to viori.com, that's spelled V U O R I dot com forward slash sweet spot to get your 20% off coupon. One more time, that's viori.com forward slash sweet spot.
1: If you want to support our show, make sure to check out our sponsor, LinkedIn, by visiting linkedin.com slash sweet spot to post your job for free. When you're hiring for your small business, it's essential that you get quality and qualified professionals. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs can help you find the right people for your team with the fast and free tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. They have a network of more than a billion professionals, many of which you can't find elsewhere. And this makes LinkedIn the best place to hire while making the process easy and intuitive. Because of how easy it is with LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses find qualified candidates in less than 24 hours. LinkedIn have just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier. That's why two and a half million businesses trust LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Link is in the show notes. Yeah, we we call it contextual interference in modal learning literature, so context. Can be anything that makes it more realistic to the real game. So, say for example, the more you add pressure, that's more like a real game. The more you add a target, that's, a, that's more like the real game. Obviously a ball, there's a difference between making a practice swing without a ball and then adding a ball makes it more realistic. Being on the course, having people around you, being in the on the golf course environment, all of these things are context layers that we add on. And the more layers you add on, the harder it is to make a change. Because our brain, like you said, is wired for all those pieces. And so one of the ways to make a change is to actually strip away those layers of context. So I I think that honestly, the progression that people take themselves through when making a swing change is one of the most important things. So at the very first level, we got to strip away as much as possible. So that could be doing practice swings with no, not even a target in mind. You're just making practice swings, maybe getting a video to make sure the movement is doing as you want. Then we might add on another layer And the next layer might be hit an object that's not a ball. So it could be a paper ball, it could be a balloon that's partially deflated or inflated. It could be a foam ball. So there's an object that you're hitting now but it's not something that's gonna give you a result. The next layer would be let's do a golf ball So we're adding a real golf ball here, but there's no result. So maybe we hit shots into a net. Again, it allows you to keep focus, but we're adding on that new layer. We're allowing the brain time to rewire itself to that new level of context. And then you just keep progressing it up. Okay, now let's add a target. Maybe turn the simulator on or maybe go on the range. Let's add some pressure now. Let's do a target game. It's amazing. Sometimes people can do the uh, do the actual task that they're trying to do, and then when you start to play a game, oh, hit towards this target, and you've got this much either side of it, and then they revert straight back to the old way. Again, that can be a loss of concentration, right? Someone could go from thinking about the movement, and now when a target game is introduced, their brain switches to the target, their old motion comes back because that's wired in with that. So yeah, gradually progressing yourself through these stages is another huge trick for this. Scaling, exaggeration, losing the fear of a bad shot. We can add constraints as well. This is a good way. If you're on the golf course, so I had a player who could... They could hit the toe side of the club. They were a shanker, but they could hit the toe side of the club on the range. But then you add the layer on of the course, you know, they take them on the course and the shank comes straight back and they just weren't able to direct their attention away from the target. So what we would used in that situation was a constraint. I would take them on the course and we would put a physical object next to the ball, which blocks off a shank usually it was a water bottle, so it'd make a loud noise as well. So hopefully that makes sense. You've got a ball and then maybe an inch and a half to the side of it, slightly farther away from you is a water bottle. So if your club creeps away from your body, you're gonna hit the ball and the water bottle. It makes a loud bang, makes you look embarrassed. And so that, that was a good way of helping him increase his attention and concentration, bringing it back to what he needs to do. So these are all things that you can do as well. But yeah, ultimately, this stuff takes time. Even with the best process in the world, we've got to rewire our brain, and it just takes reps and time for us to do that.
0: Indeed. We're right, going to move on to the next one. So I've actually started writing a new book, and I was writing this chapter yesterday, and I thought it might be an appropriate topic. The book is... The idea is I'm going to I'm writing like kind of a, an every golfer's guide to competition. So like not not from the perspective of some elite PGA Tour player, but try to help people who want to get better at match play, gambling with their buddies, club competitions and stroke play events. So that that's what I've been working on recently. And with that, one, one thing that I've always noticed about players who are better competitors is that they take a lot of responsibility and the rest of the lot, so to speak, you know, the players who are are struggling more, I see them blaming a lot of external factors. So, you know, they'll walk off the course and they'll say, oh, yeah, that guy was playing so slow. He was distracting me all day. He was moving around in my swing or the greens were horrible today or the wind. It's always something. And To be fully honest, I've been this golfer. We've all been this golfer. It's one of like, I think it's actually one of like the pastimes of golf. After your round, you sit down and complain about all the things that made you shoot what you shot. And there's a balance here. I don't expect everyone to be like a stoic, but I, you know, whether you want to become a better golfer, better competitor, I, I think that there's a line in the sand where you take ownership over what you can And control what you can and the rest of it all of that external stuff you know the playing partners the course setup whatever else it is you just kind of let it go a bit you don't latch on to it you don't make excuses for it you kind of pay attention to what you did and then you think internally afterwards like what could i do to change that and i'll give an example i You know, when I first started getting back into golf about 10 years ago, I got a chance to play with a guy at the course I joined who was a great competitor, and I just was always watching him. He didn't really give me a lot of advice, but I just kind of absorbed what I saw. I don't think I ever saw him complain about anything, and this uh, he was a bit extreme in this sense, but if he wasn't hitting his driver well, you'd see him on the range afterwards for 15 minutes. Just very diligent about how he approached his game. And you could just see that he was taking responsibility for everything. And again, I don't expect everyone to go to the great lengths that he did. He wanted to be one of the best tournament players in our area, and he was. But you could take some of that and and play a little bit less of that blame game after the round and, and think about, what you could have done differently and think a little bit more analytically. I think that's a really important trait to have for any golfer, especially for the golfer who who kind of aspires to compete
1: a little bit more. I'd agree with that. Uh, I'd almost agree to a fault. <laughs> <So.
0: laughs> well, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's kind of like, it is, it's one of these things that's where it's like, oh, that's life advice too, because if you want to get better at anything, like you want to have better finances, you want to have a better relationships, whatever, like at some point, you have to stop the finger pointing, right, and the complaining, and you have to look within, and be like, well, "What can I do to get better? I can't keep blaming everyone else because no one else is going to come save me." And, and that, and golf. I think the hard thing about golf is, is that golf makes it so easy to point the finger at something else, like the gust of wind, the bad bounce. You know the, the green, the green speeds weren't what you wanted that day. Like there's just so many things that you could easily point your finger at and be like, ah, oh, that was the reason I didn't play well. So it, it's just something I, I've noticed amongst better players over the years. And not to say that they don't do this to some extent. You see PGA Tour players blaming spike marks on the greens after putts. No one's perfect at this. But you know that the better players are, they're taking a good hard look at themselves and saying, like, what did I, what what could I control to get me better and not? throw my hands up in the air and be like, oh, that wasn't my fault. Then you'll you'll just get stuck in neutral or reverse. And golf makes that very easy to do. And there's a lot of frustrated golfers who end up like that. Um, So yeah, I I would love for people to think about what could you take more ownership and responsibility in your game? And if you're listening to this show, obviously you're kind of keen to that. It's just something I've always felt very strongly about. Don't play the blame game. That was was actually one of my earlier blog posts. Do not play the blame game. It never ends well for golfers.
1: Well, my example of that is keeping my putter that I'd never putted well with for 20 years. And everybody's like, why, why you still have that putter? I'm like, it's not the putter. It's me. (laughs) Yeah. I eventually change it and uh, still, still play bad, still play bad. So it's still, it's still me, not the putter. All right. The other one, early extension, because this is a, such a common topic. And I don't want people to think that, you know, if you have early extension, you have to get rid of it. It's not, it's not the end of the world that people think it is. But there are a lot of people who you could tell them that a million times and they still work hard on getting rid of early extension. And, you know, I've looked at loads of online videos and I don't really see the advice that I'm about to give. And so, You know what early extension is, John, do you? It's where, you know, your hips in the downswing, they thrust towards the ball, and your upper body then works back. So you end up looking very vertical impact, almost as if you're standing up. You lose all your angles effectively. Or they call it goat-humping sometimes. (laughs) I've heard the goat-humping. Yeah, I've heard that phrase. Um, It's associated with poorer players. I often think a lot of the correlation is not necessarily causation. I just think that you know, better players tend not to early extend as much for other reasons. But like I said, people are going to work on this, so I'll give them my opinions on it. So typically, how people have gone about getting rid of early extension is to stop the extension part. You know, so they do drills like keep your butt on a wall. All right. Or they put a chair behind them and you've got to keep your butt against that. And what happens is players can do that when there's no speed, when they're doing it in slow motion. They're like, oh, yeah, this is easy. And then the moment they go and hit a golf ball and the speed increases, bam, they go back to early extension. Why? Because extension is a power move. Right. Extension is actually a good thing and we don't want to get rid of it. It's the early word. That's the key word there, the early part. So what do pros do that's different then to amateurs? Well, from the top of the swing, amateurs will typically from straight from the top of the swing they'll extend. Right? That's where they get the look. What pros do is slightly different. In the early part of the downswing, they often squat down first. So if if our listeners go and do some slow-motion videos on YouTube of Tiger and Rory or I mean any player really with an iron. What they'll see is from the top of the swing, almost everybody has a squatting motion. They'll start the work towards the ground in the early part of the downswing. So the hips drop a little bit, the butt moves back a little bit. John?
0: Oh my God, the head drops? I thought it was supposed to sit still. Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> you draw the line on the top of your head in your swing and it shouldn't leave from there, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: well, yeah, There's, I mean, there's a whole... <laughs> deep deep rabbit hole we could go down into why a head drop can actually help. But uh, yeah, the head drops, the hips drop in height. You know, I have the Gears 3D software and I've seen the tour Average drops their hips about two, three inches, I think, in height from the top of the swing. And then once they've made that squatting motion through impact, that's when they extend up. Okay, so it's not that they don't extend. The pros do extend. They extend as much, if not more than the amateurs. However, they proceed it with a squatting motion and the extension happens a little later. And that squatting motion helps both those things happen. So if you're squatting down and then extend up, you're going to be in a different position at impact than if you just extended up from the top of the swing. And also it changes the the momentum as well. If you in transition was squatting down, the hips are kind of falling towards the ground. So when you reverse that and you start pushing up and extending up, you're actually fighting the momentum of the hips and the body as well. So it achieves a different look. So yeah, in terms of early extension, I would say don't try and get rid of extension, just add more squat in transition. Now that will make the contact more fat, so you're going to have to do something to thin it out again. But it's great for those who are, who early extend and hit thin. Then this is great because adding more squat in transition will reduce some of the early extension and it will reduce their thin shots as well. Does that make sense so far, John?
0: It does. I don't bit? have any retorts or thoughts because this is uh... – Totally outside my realm. Not not something I think about while I swing. Do I do that? You've seen me videos of my swing. Do I squat? I have no idea.
1: Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I know I don't, it, know
0: I don't. I don't early extend. I'm pretty sure I don't do that because I'm carrying so much shaft lean into it. But
1: uh, yeah, I that's something extend. I've ever thought about. I early extend a little bit. I don't, I don't mind it. I, I work on it occasionally. If I'm ever thinning shots, then I'll work on adding more squats. So it's very algorithmic, right? I don't just work on early extension for no reason to achieve a certain look. I, I work on it for a function. If ever I'm thinning it, I'll add a little bit more squat in transition. Um, <coughs> the other thing with pros, I think I just caught your flu. <laughs> John, Um, the other thing with pros is they're also more rotated at impact. Their hips are typically more open than an amateur. So when you're thrusting and extending, when you're thrusting your hips forwards, if you're not rotated at impact, you're thrusting your hips towards the ball, right? That goat humping. So it's gonna look very different. Whereas when you have a pro who's rotated, imagine a pros belt buckle is facing the target more. Okay, so when you're looking at it from down the line, from behind the, the player, when that pro thrusts forwards, they're now thrusting towards the target. So it looks different. The thrust is still there. It's just in happening in a different direction. So more rotation is another w- reason why pros don't look as if they're early extending as much.
0: That makes sense to me.
1: Yeah. Now, the third thing I would say is there are often technical reasons why players early extend. Usually when a player is early extending, they're doing it for a reason. Maybe they're doing it to clear some space for their early release, for example. So early extension and early release, they go hand in hand 95% of the time. When we early release, we're going to fat it. All right, the low point's going to go behind. The club's going to dig into the ground more. And so players will often early extend and move backwards and up out of it to give themselves space so that they don't fat it. So oftentimes if you're gonna change early extension, you might have to change more than one thing. You might have to change uh, the early release as well. This is why these things are so difficult to change. Another big reason for a early extension is a steep club shaft in transition. So if you stop a player very early in the downswing, you see most professionals, the club is laid off. It's behind them, it's in a shallower position. Typically, that helps a player not to early extend. Or to put it another way, if you are steep with that club shaft in transition, most players are going to early extend to try and shallow that club shaft. I know we've talked about that with Shaheen as well. So again, there can be reasons for this early extension.
0: Man, the golf swing's so complicated.
1: It is, yeah, it is. <laughs> um, the other big reason for it, I'll leave this this will be the last reason, is an open face. So often players will have such an open face throughout the swing that they would slice everything to the right. So what they've learned to do is to stall out their body rotation, early extend, and flip at the bottom to close the face. Okay? So they've got an open face throughout the swing, so then they do this early extended flip to close the face. And so again, if you if you were to get that player and get them in a better looking body motion, they'd actually probably hit it way right. Which all these things go hand in hand with the, our other question about why is it so difficult to make a change with the ball there? Well, sometimes you've got technical things in your swing that mean that your faults help you. <laughs> you know, that early extender, that early extension is probably helping that player. It's helping them close the face, it's helping them shallow the shaft. It's helping them not dig the club a foot behind the ground. So sometimes this is why it requires a professional or at least a very deep understanding of the mechanics to go through and say, right, I've got to pick apart some of these cause and effect pieces before I even work on the symptom, which is early extension. So yeah, it can get very, very complicated. I mean, to simplify it in terms of how I personally work on it, if I'm hitting it thin, I'll add more squat in transition. If I'm hitting it fat, I'll add more rotation and spring up through impact. So that's how I I do it, uh, and that helps me work towards less early extension without thinking too much about a lot of pieces. So yeah, that's how I go about it.
0: I don't have anything to add. To what it's, just, uh, <laughs> it's a deep topic, I know. I like know, li- like literally literally nothing
1: <laughs> well it's something that if you go on on Twitter on Instagram I'm gonna just trust that talk yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm
0: gonna trust that you're you've been studying this for years and you know what you're talking about so uh, you have my full trust
1: it's a very popular topic even that even the tweet of mine it was a short tweet but it, it reached a lot of people so it's kind of amongst a certain type of golfer it's very very popular so sorry if that wasn't for you golfers listening right know there's a subset of people who are drooling at the mouth over that stuff
0: that's why we didn't do a full episode on it yeah (laughs) all right john bring us back to earth i actually as my mind was wandering i just remembered something (laughs) cool just a a quick note here on, on on how big this show has become so i recently went to a friend of mine from my course is a national member at this amazing club called the Inverness Club in Ohio, which has hosted U.S. Opens, PGA Championships, they had a Solheim Cup, they're having a L- Women's U.S. Open. I think they should have another U.S. Open there, just A-plus, incredible golf course. Also, fun fact, I believe that's where I picked up my flu from the airport probably. But I'm both we played both days there. The first day we get there and the caddy's like, I recognize your voice. He's like, are you John Sherman? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I knew it. He's like, I hear you on Chasing Scratch all the time. And like, you know, I got to listen to your show still. So there's a a cool, you know, cool show uh, to our buddies over at Chasing Scratch, how big their communities become. And then on the second day on the putting green and someone comes over to me and they're like, are you John Sherman? I'm like, why, well, yes, I am. <laughs> like, this is getting fun. And he's like, oh, you know, we're all huge sweet spot fans, like him and his buddies who were playing that day. Uh, apparently, I think they noticed me on the range. So I just think it's very cool. That I, I traveled to, this has happened a few times now. It's happened to me at the Masters. It's happened to me. I went to a, a PJ tour event at Memphis. I know you, you keep saying you don't get recognized. I don't know why that is. Maybe you don't leave your, Yeah. You know. Okay, well, it, it's happening to me and just wanted to, you know, say thanks again to everyone who listens.
1: You think I'd be more recognized with a, a British voice in, <laughs> in America, yeah. but uh, clearly not. No, no one likes me. Or maybe they do and they just don't want to talk to me because they think I'm going to talk to them about angles and geometry.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, I don't want to... This guy's going to dull me to death. <laughs> Please, somebody, when you see Adam shake his hand, we appreciate it. Anyway, I thought I'd throw that in there because it was pretty cool. It's nice to be recognized for the work we're doing. Alright, so my next... Mini thought is kind of a reminder. I, th- I still think a lot of people don't know this, but it's it's from our buddy Mark Brody's book, Every Shot Counts. So he had some numbers in there on, you know, uphill putts and downhill putts and side hill putts. Just a reminder that don't try and leave yourself a specific putt. This is a, a strategic discussion for short game shots and even iron shots. You know, I, I play a lot of courses that are sloped, you know, classic golf courses like a Donald Ross course The back of the green is always higher than the front of the green. And everyone's like, oh, you got to leave it below the hole. And I'm like, great. I would love to do that if I could go take my golf ball, run over to the green and go place it five feet before the cup. That'd be great. You don't get to do that in golf though. <laughs> so everyone always talks about holes like, well, you're going to want to be on the left side of the fairway or you're going to be one of like, that'd be awesome if I could do that, but I can't. Cause we you know we can't control the face and strike and ground contact effectively as, as much as we think we can. But in Brody's book, there are some stats, you know, technically, yes, a five foot uphill putt I think is a 5% better make rate than a five foot downhill, putt. it's not significant though. What he found was that side hill, uphill, downhill closer is better. You always want the closer putt. but I think what the real problem people, when they think like this, it's not necessarily that it's the target selection. It's the intent. So if I step up to a 30 yard pitch chip shot and I have a big sloping green and I say to myself, I want to leave this 10 feet short of the hole well, now you've changed your target 10 feet short of the hole. Some balls are going to go past that and some balls are going to go short of that. So if you keep sh- if you shift it further away from the hole, your average outcome is going to be further away from the hole. You'll leave yourself a lot more uphill putts. They're just going to be longer. And people think like this with iron shots too, which is even crazier. Don't try and leave yourself a specific putt. You are just going to increase your distance to the hole in the long run. And when we make strategic decisions, we're not thinking about just the one shot in front of us. We're thinking about the hundreds and thousands of shots we're going to be hitting throughout this year and many years to come. And unless you have, I can't really think of many green designs. Yeah, there's some crazy greens out there. I know some people act like there's like a lava pit with alligators ready to jump at you if you go past the hole. And you're going to be struck by lightning. But it's just like everyone always responds to material like, well, you haven't played my course before. I'm like, I've played a lot of courses and I've played a lot of these designs where they're very extreme from back to front. I'm still not trying to leave myself a seven footer uphill because I don't want to leave myself a 20 footer uphill because I know that's what's going to happen. I'm going to chunk a few of them. I'm not going to give the right amount of clubhead speed to it that's just how it works in golf you have to think about your you know this you know a lot of the things that our buddy scott fossa talks about you need to consider your overall dispersion with that intent and what it does to your your ability to score so yeah don't leave your don't try and leave yourself an uphill butt
1: yeah so even on the chipping side chipping and pitching it's about centering that shot pattern that shot dispersion more over the hole rather than in a certain area I noticed this recently. I looked looked at some of my stats on Arcos and found that my chips and pitches, they were all coming up short. And a huge part of that is just mental. It's not a strike issue. It's just, there's almost something in us that, if a ball is short, it's always going towards the hole. It's always getting closer, right? So we feel like as we're watching it, oh, it's getting closer, getting closer, getting closer. Whereas once you go past it, it's, oh, it's going farther away. No! Stop, 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 stop. No! And it just keeps getting worse and worse. So there's almost like there's this. why like people uh, don't take enough club either. It's like yeah. going over
0: the green is so painful because you're like, oh, I hit a good shot there. And it's, I I blew it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was thinking about a joke as one of my playing partners the other day. He hit hit a shot that went maybe five foot or ten foot past the pin, and he, he walked up to me and he's like, oh, I use too much club. <laughs> and I yeah. thought, <laughs> yeah, he's gone ten foot past the pin once, and now Horrible. for the next year Horrible. he's not going to use enough club. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's true in chipping as well. So, yeah, for the next round I noticed that pattern, and I started to, over chip shots, kind of commit to actually trying to hit a little – past it in order to center my dispersion, knowing that sometimes I'm going to, you know, get a little bit of fear and decelerate on it a little bit, or maybe not hit it perfectly. And it's going to come up short. And yeah, my chipping was much better. My strokes gained, I think, for that round went up significantly. So yeah, it's good looking at your patterns, looking at the short game dispersion, making sure it's kind of even, making sure you're hitting just as many past the cup as short, short of it as well, not trying to get too cute with it.
0: Yeah, I think it's just one of like the great challenges of golf and why it's so fascinating as a game because in the moment, like our brains are, are we're so wanting to make decisions based on this one outcome, the whole, like we want to score well on this one hole. And we're looking at the conditions and we're like, oh, that would be a great spot to leave it. And, and you, you, it's so hard for your brain to think long-term in those scenarios or all the outcomes of the shots that you could hit. And that's why, you know, course management and and optimal strategy is, is very at odds against with how our brains work sometimes. And I I still see this a lot on social media where, where people will argue for this. And I really think if anyone is genuinely trying to leave themselves like on a specific quadrant of the green or a side of the hole, I think you're, you're just, I mean, you, you can continue to do that if you'd like, but you're, you're leaving strokes on the table. I'm, certain of it um it's just a long-term strategy that that's not going to work again even tour players need to be taught not to do this many times and they've
1: got a lot more to worry about than you (laughs) i was gonna say even if a tour player aims at the middle of the green they're still gonna miss it a certain percentage of time much higher than people would think as well
0: one of my favorite stats that Lou Stagner and Scott had collaborated on this one was greens and regulation on front pins on the PGA tour back pins. And when you think about a front pin scenario and a lot of tour players will go for that, you're essentially short, like you are playing in a short sided situation technically, because you're trying to thread the needle into a small piece of green. And what they found was, is that when the pin is up front, the green and regulation drops significantly versus when the pin was in the back. And it's quite simple because if they're chasing that front pin, they're going to miss a certain amount short of that green on the fringe or the bunker or whatever's there. And that's one of the things that like Scott had to rewire a lot of tour players and, and collegiate players brains was like, you stink at front pins. Don't go after them. Like you need to play a little bit past it. So you can center that shot dispersion at the hole, past the hole and remove some of those sloppy shots that are short of the green where you're going to make some messy bogeys that you shouldn't be making again if you're a tour player you step up be like oh i can put the ball there no problem and they can't (laughs) like they're going to strike the ground a little bit differently the wind's going to gust a little bit differently they might strike it a little bit off the toe or the heel and it spins a little differently and the ball speeds less like they're not machines either and and, and certainly not a 15 handicap you're not leaving the ball eight feet short of the hole versus you know the long you just can't do it
1: So stop it, please. (laughs) usually when you land it short on tour as well, it hits that false front and rolls back down. So you end up farther away from it. So, again, stats, you can look at the chipping from that area. You could take a, a short shot to a pin cut on the front and look at the up and down rate, and it's probably 60%. And then you take twice the distance of that on the back of the green and look at the up and down rate from there with a putter, and it's gonna be you know they're not gonna hit many three putts, so it's much better to have a long putt than a short chip. And I've I've done tests with players where I ask them how far do you hit a seven iron? And then we hit shots, and I look at how many shots as a percentage did they hit past the number they said. So if they said I hit my seven iron 150 how many shots go longer than 150. And obviously the higher the handicap, the fewer shots go longer than that. Obviously there's gonna be more shorter <laughs> shots because they hit more bad shots, but they should have the same ability to hit longer than that. Whereas a better player like you and myself, we might, or a tall pro would be a better example. They might say, oh, I hit my seven nine one seventy, and they'd probably get 50% of them going a little farther than that or at least 30, 40% going farther than that. So they're a bit more centered around what they think it is. Part of that is expectations. Part of that is technique. But a huge part of that is just how far people think they hit their clubs. But yeah, to those short pins, you are much more likely to hit shorter than you think you do, than you, think, than you predict you are. So it's probably better to play for that. Give yourself a big buffer. Just a summary of probably our first ever episode, I think, how to practice if you can't go to a range. So this could be good for winter. I mean, there's lots of things you can do, just uh, face spray. With a foam ball, if you have the ability to hit a foam ball, if you don't, just a tee even, that will still leave a mark on the face. So you can practice strike. Even if you don't have the ability to make a full swing, you can do it with chipping. Try and hit a few off the toe, try and hit a few off the heel with chipping, just to learn how to move it around the face. Try and hit it higher on the face, lower on the face as well to change the depth. Divot board, obviously, as well, our one of our favorite training aids, the divot board. You can work on your ground contact with that. You could also get a little piece of carpet and some guitar picks or some bottle caps and work on clipping those off the carpet without disturbing the carpet. Again, so you're, you're working on your arc depth. And winter is a great time to do movement work as well, To related to the question we talked about earlier of changing your movement and why is it so difficult? Well, in winter, you get the, the benefit of reducing a lot of that contextual interference. There's no target there. You're not playing competitions. So it's much, uh, you can make a lot of those bigger adjustments during winter, which can be more disruptive, right? The more you change your motion, yes, you might be working towards something new, but it's going to be more disruptive. Even if it's a better motion, you still have to have time for all the pieces to kind of come together with anything that you're adding to your swing. Like I said, if you try and get rid of early extension, that's great. You can work on that, but other pieces have to come in as well to make that new non-early extended swing work. And so, winter is a great time to work on those things. Your thoughts on winter practice, John? Just get a launch
0: monitor? Yeah, just get a $20,000 launch monitor and a great simulator setup. Yeah, Yeah, just let her rip. Yeah, I I feel like we should. You know, that was our first episode, which was, I mean, years ago at this point. I was actually thinking we should redo that one. Winter's a time to experiment, change things, uh, risk free environment. I'm big on getting your body ready, lifting weights, speed training. Those are some of my focuses in the winter. You know, it depends where you are in in, in your in the spectrum of, of golf skill. I think a more developed player is more like skill maintenance. So for me in the winter, I'm not really trying too much new. I'm more just working on my bread and butter, you know, big three stuff, just trying to maintain what I've got and keep my body. I'm always trying to get stronger and faster. It's just a fun game for me. But if someone was newer or intermediate type of player, then like, yeah, you can get some lessons, experiment with swing changes. That's the time where you could start thinking about club fitting. Yeah. If you're going to make a change, you want to do it in more of a risk-free, less pressure environment so that when the spring comes around, hopefully you've ingrained some of those changes and then you can start testing them out on the course. That's the long and short of it for me. But obviously there's a lot more we could do there.
1: Cool. We're done.
0: That's it. I can go cough now. Sweet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Where where, where can everyone find you? Hadammyungolf.com forward slash hacks. H-A-C-K-S. That is where you'll get the free ebook that talks about the big three and much more. Some strategy stuff as well. Some nice visuals in there. Some drills for quick wins. John, where can people find you?
0: You can find my book, The Four Foundations of Golf, on Amazon. You can check out my driver practice guide. I'll put it in the show notes as well as Adam's free ebook. Yeah, thanks again for everyone supports us, gives us feedback and ideas for show. And, and thank you to people who are coming up to me in person and saying thanks. Hopefully, you can start doing that to Adam. <laughs> I like staying anonymous. <laughs>
1: I like staying under the radar.
0: Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Um, all right. We'll see you next time with a new episode.